This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. Time now for What the Farage and Breaking Tonight. More than 200 young Muslim men have surrounded a Hindu temple in Smethwick near Birmingham. As tensions which brought violence to Leicester appears to have spread across the West Midlands. Organisers of the protest say it was launched in response to a decision by the temple to invite a controversial speaker to an event. It follows widespread disorder and violence across Leicester in recent weeks between Muslim and Hindu rifles. Masked groups banishing weapons and targeting religious sites have been brawling and almost nightly attacks with police struggling to contain them. Watch. We're on Nelton Road right now. Stand up with the Hindu mobs. As you can see, look. They're throwing glass. They're throwing glass at us. More Hindus. Yeah. And here they are. Here they are. They're trying to give it to us. They're trying to give it to us. Yeah, but look what they do on the other side. Police have made 47 arrests so far, with one man jailed for possessing an offensive weapon, though there has been a distinct lack of coverage from the MSM in this country. Community leaders say the violence can be traced back to a cricket match between India and Pakistan on August the 28th, and in a joint statement today, they urged the, quote, incitors of hatred to stop the provocation and violence. They added, we arrived in the city together, we faced the same challenges together, we fought off racist haters together, and collectively made the city a beacon of diversity and community cohesion. Nigel Farage, uh, great to have you tonight. Uh, you say our immigration crisis is ultimately to blame uh, for those horrible scenes. <laughs> Tony Blair's to blame. Gordon Brown's to blame. David Cameron's to blame. Theresa May's to blame. Boris Johnson's to blame. Liz Truss is to blame. And virtually every single MP in Westminster over the last 25 years is to blame. In 1997, the Labour government decided we would go for diversity mass immigration. We would rub the noses of the right in diversity. Well, here it is, boys and girls. Here is diverse Britain. A diverse Britain we've not been allowed to criticise in any way at all without the most awful names being thrown at us. Those of us like me, who for 20 years have said immigration can be a net positive for the country, but uncontrolled net immigration is not a positive to the community. And if it happens without integration, it will lead to division and violence. Well, that is playing out on the streets of Leicester tonight. Our politicians have done this to our country, to our lovely towns and cities. This is something from which they may never, ever recover from. We've imported from the subcontinent the tribal hatreds that exist between Hindus and Muslims. Oh, and they say the community leaders, they had to put up with racism you're looking at real racism now. We have directly imported racism into our country. There is no other conclusion. Uh, Nigel, the police seem to have lost control as well. Well, the police don't exist when it comes to anything to do with the ethnic minority. You just look. Just look at what's happened to the firearms unit in South London, uh, where a man was shot, and that's never good, but we hardly ever use our guns in this country, and that leads to marches, it leads to Diane Abbott condemning the police and, you know, the Metropolitan Police themselves regressing what has happened and the division it's caused in our community. I, I tell you this, if, unless we go back to the doctrine of Martin Luther King, 
Our cities are finished as decent places to live. Unless we end identity politics, unless we treat people all the same under the law, regardless of sex or race or gender or creed, we are finished. But our police are too scared for fear of being called racist. We've seen it with grooming gangs. We're seeing it playing out whenever the police have to use force against somebody who doesn't happen to be white. And now we're witnessing race riots going on on the streets of the West Midlands. It's about time we confronted the truth. I've read today's national press telling us it's all the fault of cricket. It's all the fault of social media. No, it's the fault of our leaders. Well, Nigel, listen to this. Uh, on Channel 4 News tonight, uh, the left-wing organisation, Darshna Sonny, who is their home affairs correspondent, blamed sectarian strife in Leicester on right-wing ideology politics imported from the subcontinent. Now, as the Daily Telegraph, Alison Pearson, uh, Daily Telegraph columnist Alison Pearson pointed out in response, does she mean bigoted, backward, racist, patriarchal, uh, patriarchal views hostile to integration imported from the subcontinent? Well, that's absolutely what she means. Um, of course, I mean, Alison's absolutely right in saying that. We have imported the politics of the divided subcontinent where racism is part of normal, everyday life in a huge way. And as we go on, and we must think about this, you know, we gave out 1.2 million visas last year. We gave them out to workers. We gave them out to students, the family reunions, and the biggest number of those came from India. Trade deals that the Conservative government want to do with India aren't based on reducing tariffs and simplifying standards. No, giving out large numbers of visas is a part of it. Blair started this, but the, the, the Conservative Party are just as complicit. Do we want to finish up with cities like Malmo in Sweden that have gone from being peaceful cities 20 years ago to now being the rape capital of Europe and number two for murder? Is that what we want? Is, is this the diverse Britain Tony Blair sold us? And any of us that dared criticise it were the worst people that have ever lived. Nigel Farage, very strongly point. And Nigel is, of course, back here at GB News, 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Nigel, thank you so much. It's time for Star US journalist and host of The Megyn Kelly Show, Megyn Kelly. Now, despite draconian vaccine mandates being enforced across various Democratic states and the unvaccinated still being banned from the US, Sleepy Joe Biden has made this remarkable statement. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. He's right, of course, about the pandemic, but his very own administration clearly don't agree, showing us once again who's actually running the show. Biden officials undercut the elderly president, telling CNN that the comments did not signal a change in policy. And there were no plans to lift the ongoing COVID-19 public health emergency, which has been in place since January 2020. Pointing to the statement, furious Americans are quite rightly questioning the justification for ongoing pandemic measures, including federal vaccine mandates on health care workers, military personnel and some non-US citizens entering the country by plane. So, I mean, Megan, is this shambolic administration suffering from a chronic case of COVID hysteria? First of all, can we just talk about how the fact that Biden says these things is always tried to, they, they try to clean it up at the White House, his White House daddies 
always have to say, little Joey was confused again. We, we are not going to defend Taiwan if China tries to take over. We are, we are not saying that the COVID pandemic is over. Where's the Easter Bunny to corral President Biden when we need him? Um, it's embarrassing how they don't let the man say what he actually feels. And I think in this case, this was Biden actually being honest about how he feels. This was every once in a while, the truth pops out of Joe Biden's mouth. So here he says the COVID pandemic is over and he actually means it. I think he actually does mean the thing about Taiwan. I think he lies at other times. Like he certainly was lying when he told us the Afghan forces were going to stand up and not fold in, in a week. There are plenty of things he lies about, like inflation is transitory. But this one's true. He said the truth, and he shouldn't have been corrected by his White House daddies because the pandemic is over. There is no official metric for when a pandemic ends. It's you know it when you see it. And while it took Joe Biden a hell of a lot longer than it took the, the rest of us to realize this thing is over, it is. His detractors will look and say 400 people are still dying uh, if you look at the numbers uh, on a day, uh, an average daily basis over seven days of, of COVID. I don't believe that. They've been telling us that all along of COVID or with COVID because they've been merging those two things from the beginning. You know, old people who die with COVID get counted as people who died of COVID. So they fudge the numbers. You look around, people are doing fine. They've resumed their lives. All the polls show that the people believe the pandemic is over. Only 11% of the people, and that includes the crazies who drive with the masks in their cars while alone, are actually fearful of dying of COVID. So that ought to tell you something. And they're ready to get back to their lives. Now, there's that weird contingent that can't let go of the emergency, that loves governmental powers. Um, and there's that, that piece of his administration that understands he's got policies that depend on their lie that we're stuck in perma-pandemic. For example, he just forgave hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans, forgave, it's wealth transfer, um, by saying it's a COVID emergency. It's, it's justified by the, well, okay, you just said that we're, we're no longer in a pandemic, so how can you use the pandemic to justify that? There are other policies. So he, he's asking for $22 billion right now in pandemic relief. Well, do we need it? Are we in a pandemic or aren't we? Right? Like the, you mentioned the, the vaccine mandates that are in place for the military and for healthcare workers. So it's like he, he hasn't matched up the policy with his honest belief, but that's the next step. And if he doesn't, the lawsuits need to come quickly. Well, then, Megan, uh what about the people who are still being discriminated against as well? Djokovic wasn't allowed in for the US Open. No pandemic. Right. So what's that about? It's about shaming the unvaccinated. I think it's disgusting. Well, I mean, it's so funny that Novak Djokovic can't get in to play the US Open. And we literally have had two million illegal migrants cross our southern border this year alone that we know about. That doesn't count the gotaways, the people who avoided detection. They, they haven't had vaccines. <laughs> we have no idea what their COVID status is. And when asked, we're told we're bigots if we object at all to them coming across the southern border. They're so upset that, that Ron DeSantis flew 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Was anybody tested for COVID there? I don't think so. But Novak Djokovic, who would have been contained, would have been watched, certainly wouldn't have been closer than six feet to anybody on that tennis court. No, that's a bridge too mm. far. Why? Because it's virtue yeah. signaling. And, and Megan, t t tell me about what Ron DeSantis did, because in fact, it's something we would have been covering over the past 12 days. But this country, as yeah. you know, stopped because of the national mourning period. But this decision uh, to send the illegal migrants to make a point to Martha's Vineyard, very liberal, democratic area. Has it worked? Has he made his point? 
Absolutely. He's made his point. He decided he's the governor of Florida, governor of Texas and governor of Arizona have already been shipping these migrants to sanctuary cities across the U.S. where they say, give us your poor, you're tired. We'll take them. We won't work with federal law enforcement to deport you. You're you're safe here. So Governor Abbott and Governor Ducey have said, here you go. Here's thousands of them. See how you do. And now you've got the the Washington D.C. mayor, among others, saying it's a humanitarian crisis. It's a we're not Texas. We're not set up for this. Texas is not set up for this either. Texas is getting a daily influx that would dwarf the 50 migrants Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, to make a point, put on an airplane and flew to the Massachusetts town of Martha's Vineyard. We've got towns in Texas that have 147, 148,000 total in population that have had an influx of greater than that this past year, greater than their so don't tell me we're not Texas. We're not prepared. Texas isn't prepared either. So so Martha's Vineyard is a sanctuary city. They say, give it. Come here. All right, fine. Off go the migrants after signing consents. Who wouldn't want to go to Martha's Vineyard? You want to like wander around Texas aimlessly or would you like to go to this beautiful beach town on the seaside? So they went and the Martha's Vineyard liberal elite. These are not poor people run and say, Oh my God, we can't handle this. It's a humanitarian crisis. You need to get them out of here. They spent all of 40 hours there. They shipped them off to a military base. And now the headlines are, and I quote CNN from, from the Martha's Vineyard residence, they enriched us. <laughs> we, we were enriched by the 44 hours we got oh, with them. And God. we're going to go visit them at the military base to which we kicked them out. Just as long as they're not in our neighborhood, right? Megan Kelly, brilliant stuff. Uh, top US journalist, host, of course, of the Megan Kelly Show, available on Sirius XM in the US as well as on YouTube and as a podcast for international fans. Now, after 12 days of publicly mourning his beloved mother under the gaze of the world, King Charles has flown to Scotland to grieve in private. Accompanied by Queen Consort Camilla, the new monarch arrived in Aberdeen earlier today, where he will reportedly reflect at Balmoral Castle, where the late Queen spent her final hours with him by her side. Charles has long suffered from unfavourable public opinion after his messy divorce from the much-loved Princess Diana and by wading into debates on issues such as environmental protection and architectural preservation. But as the nation mourned his mother and Charles selflessly gave himself to the British public, it quickly became clear that the new king was ready to be a more personal monarch. And it's taken his critics by surprise, like my next guest, the best-selling historian of the hit TV series, The Crown, Robert Lacey. Now, Robert has actually helped craft, really, the way that we see Charles uh, from youth to adulthood over the six seasons of The Crown, which has actually surged in popularity following the late Queen's death. Filming of the sixth instalment is currently underway in Barcelona after being paused for a day as a mark of respect for the late Queen, and the highly anticipated season five is set to hit screens in November. So let's take a look at the portrayal of young Charles so far. Am I listened to in this family? Am I seen for who and what I am? No. One day, dear boy, you shall be king. What does one have to do to get some kindness in this family? Well, Robert is happy to admit that he never used to be a fan of that Charles, but has changed his mind based on what he's seen since the late Queen's death. I'm delighted to say uh, Robert has joined me now. It's so interesting, isn't it, Robert? Because I've also been highly critical of mm. King Charles. Uh, and... I think the jury is still out on the political stuff and, you know, the eco-extremers and the leaks to the World Economic Forum, but he did a great job these past 12 days, didn't he? It's hard he to criticise. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting for a start. I mean, 
I was interested to hear you just say, report that he's going back to Scotland now. Yes. Um, I think when we look at uh, the whole question of the unity of the United Kingdom, it's interesting that the Queen died in Scotland and Charles didn't fly up to Scotland. He was in Scotland already. So it's a reminder to um, those of us on an historical cast that um, people talk about our royal family having German origins. It had Scottish origins mm. before that. And I think it was very significant the way in which um, he went to Northern Ireland um, and one actually got Sinn Féin um, and um, other anti-monarchists willing to meet him. Um, someone, I was trying to, uh, talking to somebody who, who'd, who'd worked with the Queen and I said, you know, we all know that the Queen had no power but great influence. Um, how did you see that in the Commonwealth? And he said, well, the thing was, you know, you, you come to a Commonwealth conference all ready to go into battle for your particular cause. And you could see the guy or the woman across the table you were going to have a battle with. And then you met the Queen and <laughs> somehow the atmosphere changed. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, I, I'm an unashamed monarchist. And it, it seems to me that's a, a very fine example of the way in which a truly independent uh, constitutional monarchy can help um, resolve disputes and bring us closer yeah. together, as we have been for the last two um, uh, weeks. But of course, I detect in you um, a suspicion as, as, as to whether Charles really can mm. uh, uh, maintain that independence. Well, look, we know what he thinks about everything. We've already seen over the past 12 days that politicians are going to try and influence them. I mean, we literally heard the Liberal Democrat leader, Ed Davies, say, oh, I want to talk to you about climate change. We saw the same thing from uh, President Macron of France. Now it's going to be up to Charles to prove that he can actually say, no, that's no longer my role. Uh, but look, I want to talk about the Crown, because it's amazing how influential this TV series. You are the historian for the TV series. So let me just interrupt that. I'm just the historian. Yes. I am yes. not the author. It's written no, by not. Peter Morgan. No, you're not. Absolutely. And, and some would say that's the worst role of all to be the historian because we don't stick to history all the yes. time in terms of facts. But is that what you're yes. going to ask me? Well, that's <laughs> what I was going to say, because obviously you have and your work has mm. helped craft mm. the character of Charles that we see on screen. Now, I know for a fact, Robert, uh, Charles and his team have been very disturbed by his portrayal in the earlier seasons because they think it's terrible PR for him mm. amongst young people. Uh, were you conscious of that? This is now our king. I mean, are you worried? Because presumably the new series has already been filmed. It's over the course of Diana's death, isn't it? So I presumably imagine it's not all going to be sweetness and light for Charles. Well, I mean, um, we're recounting history um, and it's no secret that season five, which is coming up in November, will look at the 80s and 90s. Mm. Now, no matter how you, um, you know, look at the details of the 80s and 90s, the big theme of the 1980s and 90s was the breakdown of the yeah, fabled yeah. royal marriage, for yeah. whatever reason, um, the recriminations between both sides. Um, we know for an absolute fact, because Prince Charles complained about it to a friend, that his mother refused to meet Camilla. The Queen refused to meet Camilla, according to Charles himself. Um, speaking to his um, uh, PR staff, the Queen had 
described her as a wicked woman. Now, those are facts, um, and, and nobody can deny them. Now, when people watch the series, they can say, well, Camilla and Diana didn't actually have lunch together in that restaurant, it was in this restaurant. Um, and they can point out, and, I mean, for example, throughout many episodes of the series, there is the wonderful figure of Martin Charteris, mm. who is the private secretary to the Queen. In fact, he was only private secretary for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. Mm. But the crown goes over decades. We can't every episode bring in a new, mm. a new private secretary. So we have one private secretary to illustrate the very crucial role that the courtiers play in shaping the monarchy. Um, and uh, yes, it is going to be difficult because my big theory about monarchy um, is that the most successful royals are the humble ones mm -hmm. who realize it's not all about me. And you can immediately think of one royal who does think it's all about him and has come to grief as a result. Mm -hmm. um, Prince Charles has had tendencies in that direction. I think the great secret of the Queen's success is that she wasn't born into the main line of succession. She was like a Princess Beatrice or Eugenie, destined for an obscure life, um, and it was destiny and the misbehavior of adults who threw her into yeah. the main line. But right from the beginning, that little girl who was so close to her grandfather, George V, realized this is a team game. And even though she became captain of the team, she always remained a team player. No, indeed. Look, I want to look ahead because, of course, you had your fascinating book out on the breakdown of the relationship between Prince William and Prince Harry. Mm -hmm. uh, the future relations between the new prince and princess of Wales and the Sussexes are going to be absolutely critical to uh, the future of the monarchy, aren't they? What's your impression over what's happened these past uh, 12 days? Because for me, with everything that I'm looking at and seeing and uh, hearing, there hasn't been any genuine reproachment. I agree with you, Dan. Um, I mean, the, the, um, Harry and William have been together on three significant occasions now since they had their big bust up. Um, for the death of Prince Philip, when they came together and walked across the courtyard, um, for the dedication of the statue to their mother, um, and then in recent days, honoring their grandmother. And I have to pay tribute to their professionalism. Um, and when I say that they were acting, I don't mean to demean their behavior at all. Both of them showed themselves willing to subordinate their personal disagreements to the bigger cause, their grandfather, their grandmother, and their mother. And they, they did it beautifully and properly. Um, but there are, you know, there's a fundamental rift there. And I know you know quite a lot about it because you as a reporter, um, were the first one to reveal mm. this plan of um, uh, Meghan and Harry to go off and be half royal and half non-royal and the way in which the Queen said either you're in or you're out. And the fundamental distinction, without going into all sorts of um, uh, unpleasant details, is that um, uh, William uh, felt that uh, Harry and Meghan in particular, with her love of publicity, um, were not accepting this idea that the royal family is a team, that they mistook celebrity for royalty, 
um, it particularly happened on a tour to Australia. Mm. Um, and the way in which Meghan in particular, she came from Hollywood, this whole idea of you're either above the line as a star or you're below the line and you can be kicked around. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, William felt that this just was not right. That royal protocol, well, not royal protocol, royal principles mm. were being infringed. So for him, as a future heir and king, this was an institutional question. For Harry, um, it's a matter of um, his wife being undervalued, in his opinion. So you've got a classic clash between duty and love. Both of those go very deep. And um, uh, I think, um, you know, the, the body language experts who chose to see little real sympathy, um, probably between the two of them, probably got it right. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. And of course, that is going to be a huge challenge uh, for our new well, well, it is, because Prince Charles said he wanted to slim down monarchy. I don't think he imagined. Not this slim. <laughs> Not as slim as that. And there's extra, a real... extra small. Exactly, exactly. No, indeed. Robert Lacey, uh, best-selling historian, of course, for the hit TV series, The Crown. So great to have you, Robert Lacey. Dan Button here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Button tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Listener.